few weeks ago, Montana reporter Dylan Tabish found himself talking electronically to a hacker, or maybe a group of hackers, who went by the name The Dark Overlord. And that person, or people, had threatened more than 15,000 students and demanded a ransom in Bitcoin, which shut down a school system in northwest Montana. Once we found out it was this overseas hacking organization, um, we were all kind of like, well, how did they find us? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. So how in the world did that happen? And why are school systems so vulnerable to cybercrime? We are going to get to that later in the show and tell you the whole story, one that a listener brought to our attention. But we're going to start with healthcare and President Trump's executive order that could, and emphasis on could, have implications for the Affordable Care Act, what we often call Obamacare. For more on what this means for consumers, I checked in with Marketplace's senior health reporter, Dan Gorenstein. And he started off by saying, if you get insurance on the ACA exchanges, nothing changes right now. The executive order directs federal departments to consider proposing regulations and to issue guidance later on. This is a process, Lizzie, that could take months. Uh, Certainly nothing is going to change before the November 1st open enrollment date for people who are buying insurance on the exchanges. The big idea here is that President Trump wants to give consumers more choices. Specifically, he's talking about uh, allowing small business owners and maybe individuals to band together into what are called association plans that would theoretically allow them to get better deals with uh, either insurers or hospitals and doctors. He also wants to extend what are called short-term insurance plans. If those options are out there, who could this help? You know, the math on this is a little fuzzy, but there are probably about 10 million Americans who, for one reason or another, just aren't able to benefit from the subsidies that some people get right now on the ACA exchanges. Um, so some people, for example, might you might work at home, you might be a part-time person, and you make more than the income threshold to get subsidies. And in the last couple of years, lots of premiums have really shot up for all kinds of different reasons. But if you don't get any sort of subsidy help, Lizzie, it's really, really expensive, sometimes prohibitively expensive for people to buy insurance. Under this executive order, depending on what the final product looks like, people could have another choice, a more affordable choice. The thing that people have to remember, though, is that both the association plans and the short-term plans are not necessarily exactly what you need. If you have a pre-existing condition, for example, you could be denied coverage. As these options come online, if they come online, people are really going to have to pay attention to the fine print here. Well, so you've been mentioning pre-existing conditions. What does this mean if you do have one? So look, I guess the way I think about this is that under the Affordable Care Act, what it really did was it regulated insurance. It put in place a number of protections, right? It said basically any insurance plan that's being sold has to cover things like maternity care, uh, mental health coverage, prescription drugs. So if you bought a plan, you knew you were going to get that. Also, it had to cover pre-existing conditions. Also, if you were sick, you couldn't be charged more than a healthy person. When we talk about regulating the industry, that's what we're talking about, standardizing what this product actually is. The executive order that President Trump has issued 
upends that. It seeks to deregulate this. And so if you're sick, if you're older, or if you're a small business that employs those folks, you could be in store for much higher prices down the road or less options or both. It's really kind of a return to the old days. Dan, you've been doing some reporting that was pretty interesting um, about the insurance industry's reaction to the executive order. What do you know? Right. So America's health insurance plans, that's the big lobby for the largest insurers in the country. All, over all these past months, when the Republicans have been introducing ideas to repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, AHIP has kind of kept its powder dry. They just haven't said too much because there's just a lot hanging in the balance for their customers, but also for their financial futures. Now, uh, in the wake of this executive order from President Trump, they wrote, quote, we believe that all Americans should have access to affordable coverage and care, including those with pre-existing conditions. And Lizzie, hmm. the way I read that is that they're saying to the president, you know what, your plan potentially is going to make it harder for people with pre-existing conditions to get coverage. That's not okay with us. That's Marketplace's Dan Gorenstein, our senior health reporter from the health desk at WHYY in Philadelphia. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lizzie. Staying with healthcare, if your office is anything like ours, someone was out sick this week. Or last week, maybe with a cold, seasonal sniffle, or maybe with something more serious. Yes, cold and flu season is here. And along with it, the $8 billion a year over-the-counter medicine industry. And whether you're trying to prevent yourself from getting sick or fighting something off, odds are you are spending some money to stay healthy. That's what some of you told us on Facebook this week. Benjamin Engler wrote that he buys zinc and way too much cough syrup when he comes down with something. Abe Rosenberg says Aleve is the only thing that makes him feel better. We also heard from Laura Langan. She's a nursing student in Minnesota. Every September, I invest in a few boxes of emergency. It's worth every penny. I watch the rest of the world struggle through cold after cold all winter while I happily chug away at my raspberry fizzy drink. Haven't had anything worse than a minor cold since early elementary school. Preventative care all the way. Meanwhile, life changes made John Purdock get serious about prevention. I never got flu shots until I had children that went to daycare. At that point, I'd learned their value. I also use hand sanitizer and antibacterial wipes when I travel on planes to clean off the trays, the seat belts, and the armrests around me as a preventative measure. John's also a fan of Afrin nose spray, Cifacol lozenges, and hot tea and coffee. Everyone has got their tricks, some more expensive than others. I'm a big soup and Netflix person. But what should we be doing to prevent colds and the flu? And how much should we spend? Well, we turn to doctors. Dr. Kara Stalzer, a primary care physician at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A., says start with the fundamentals. 
first of all, is hand hygiene. So making sure you're washing your hands, hand sanitizer is very, very helpful in this. The other thing I'd recommend is getting your flu shot. I recommend it every year. And then avoid people who you know are sick. And if you know that they're sick, make sure, especially after visiting them, that you're washing your hands very thoroughly. Dr. Shanti Kumar, Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer at USC's Keck Medical Center, agrees that investing in the basics pays off. The things that really keep you healthy often are not very expensive. It's getting a good night's rest, making sure that you eat healthy foods, getting some exercise. So those preventative things that really help you live a whole and happy life are also the same things that boost your immunity. Sometimes we don't really put the investment on the prevention aspect of things and we're putting our money in the treatment aspects, which can feel like a big chunk of money spent all at once as opposed to the little bit of time and energy that it might have taken to prevent getting sick in the first place. Hydrate, sleep, exercise, all the stuff your mom told you to do. Other things marketed as cold preventers, eh, maybe not so much. Vitamin C and zinc really hasn't been shown to prevent getting the flu. Zinc has been shown to decrease the amount of time that people are actually sick, but then too much of it is also not good for you. If you do get sick, early treatment is important. So if you are able to identify that you're sick pretty soon, there are some antivirals that are available to patients so that you can shorten the length of the flu. However, most of the time it's really about managing your symptoms. There's over-the-counter medications that are available to decrease some of the uncomfortable symptoms. The generic medications are probably just as effective as the name brand medications. And often a lot of these medications come as a combination of meds, which you might not actually need all of those medications at the same time. So taking them separately so that you can address the symptoms that you have is probably the better way to go. Dr. Kumar's toolkit for getting over a bug includes lots of fluids, an antihistamine, and a pain reliever. And chicken soup, because chicken soup has actually been shown to have some anti-inflammatory properties to it. So there's a reason why your mom always told you to drink it when you're a kid. We have got a guide to cold and flu prevention and the costs up on the web at Marketplace.org. And as always, we want to hear from you. How much of your budget goes to staying healthy this time of year? Email us. We're weekend at Marketplace.org. And on Twitter, we're at MarketplaceWKND. week, we talked about Social Security, inflation, and the cost of living adjustment. We heard from 90-year-old Florence Carlson, who shared how the numbers add up for her. I feel as though my money is just diminishing monthly. I just continually have to draw on whatever capital I have left. And if I don't live too much longer, then that'll be fine. But if I do, I actually could run out of money probably in, I don't know, maybe five or six years. Certainly, I I can't think of anybody who could live on Social Security. Now, mea culpa, a correction. 
We said that Florence receives $1,150 per week in Social Security. We meant per month. A little postscript to this story. On Friday, the Social Security Administration announced a 2% increase in benefits for next year. Good news, it's the largest increase since 2012. For the average retiree, it adds up to about an extra $25 a month. We are going to continue the conversation on next week's show when we dig into Social Security and disability. We're reading and gathering your comments and experiences, so keep them coming. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org, and you can leave us a voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Still to come, the case of that mysterious data hack in Montana. story you heard about at the top of the show. A few weeks ago, we got a tip from a listener, Skeeter Johnson, saying you've got to check out what's going on in Columbia Falls, Montana. Yes, we read all your comments. So we followed up. And it led us to a story that fascinated us. One of mysterious hackers, violent threats, dogged reporters, and rural Montana school kids caught in the middle of it all. Reporter Dylan Tabish works for the Flathead Beacon, a local newspaper, and he was covering the school hacking. But before long, he too became part of the story. Yeah, so it was kind of just an everyday Wednesday here in the Flathead Valley and some school officials in Columbia Falls. My name is Steve Bradshaw. I'm the superintendent of schools in Columbia Falls, Montana. Received these real ominous, mysterious messages. So I got a very threatening message. Electronic messages via email and text message to their personal phones. They um, threatened students. Things that they were going to splatter the blood of our children all over the hallways and things like that. And within a few hours, the threats then began spreading to other schools across our valley. It it had me bothered enough that uh, I actually um, had my shotgun in the bedroom, and I've never done that before. So the next morning, uh, which was a Thursday, um, more than 30 schools across Flathead County were canceled. Uh, affecting, you know, more than 17,500 students. Top story this afternoon, dozens of schools across northwest Montana canceled today. 30 schools and the community college, among others. The FBI and local law enforcement believe they do have a credible threat. That's why they made the decision. Yeah, our listener, Skeeter Johnson, said, like, the whole area just was brought to its knees. Um, But what did that feel like? Well, it was a, definitely a scary situation. Um, people were pretty freaked out and worried, especially after school was canceled again on Friday and no activities were allowed to go over the weekend. One of the many school closures is here at Whitefish High School, which was supposed to have their homecoming celebrations today. And they didn't even allow any of our sports teams to travel to other sites. And as a reporter, I um, was investigating and, and reporting on this too, and we actually got contacted by the suspects and... We did begin an electronic message interview with the, the suspects. If you know anything about military weapons, it should scare your region. And kind of unfortunately got to see the kind of gruesome stuff that they were saying. The, the quaint, 
small, backwoods region of the U.S. like yours is prime hunting grounds. This incident is the last thing you will expect to happen here. Um, we weren't able to get any insight into their motives or, you know, background or even if they were local. That was what our main goal was as journalists were. Like to figure out where this person was? Exactly, yeah. Trying to figure out who it was. Was it a group? Why were they targeting, you know, this kind of relatively random corner of northwest Montana? School was canceled yet again on Monday as this investigation continued. And there was no details coming out. What is the threat? What is being said? What is going on? And we felt our role as journalists was to uh, shed as you know as much light on that as we could while being responsible and also not just giving a platform to these, what we came to find out were hackers trying to scare everybody into submission. The suspect hacked into the Columbia Falls School District Network and gained access to phone numbers of students, staff, and parents. And law enforcement um, published a ransom letter that they had sent to some folks in Columbia Falls seeking payment in Bitcoin. What the heck is a Bitcoin? I've seen, you know, a couple articles on Bitcoin. Again, that's Superintendent Steve Bradshaw. He said they wanted 150,000 Bitcoins and they, they gave us three options. I mean, it was truly amazing how they tried to act like a business. What was it like communicating with this person or people who is essentially holding your community hostage? It was very uncomfortable. It was, uh, to be honest, it was, I'd never been involved in anything like this before. And, you know, it was some really ugly stuff. Do you have any idea why they would target school districts and ask for Bitcoin and ransom? It, it almost seems too strange to be real. Once we found out it was this overseas hacking organization, um, we were all kind of like, well, how did they find us? That was reporter Dylan Tabish from the Flathead Beacon, and the featured news clips came from KCFW and KRTV News. Now, the why is on the minds of school district administrators everywhere, because schools in Texas, Iowa, and Alabama also say they were hacked by the group behind the Montana incident. In the Montana case, the school district didn't pay the ransom, but they're upping their cybersecurity. The kids are now back at school. The investigation's continuing. This all raises the question, why target a school? To answer that, we have Michael Kaiser, who heads up the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Why are school districts particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks? There's a couple of things that make schools um, attractive for uh, you know, cyber criminals or other hackers. Uh, one is they just sit on a wealth of information, right? If you think of what a school has about the students, the parents, the teachers, um, it's, a va- it's an incredible amount of data, which is incredibly valuable to cyber criminals, especially those who want to, you know, steal that data and monetize it, right? Use it for things like identity theft, uh, perhaps some other things. But more importantly, they could be connected to other networks, right? They could be connected to the town's municipal network. They could be connected to a state's statewide network. So a school could be an entry point for a hacker into other networks, which are better protected, but maybe they can sneak in through a school. Oh, so if you, you know, hack this school district in Montana, maybe, you know, I'm not saying this is the case in this instance, but you could get into the Montana state government network through that school door. Absolutely. I mean, these, you know, that's the whole point of these networks is that they're interconnected. You know, when we think about schools, um, a lot of them are strapped for cash, depends on the district you're in. 
is protecting a school district, uh, you know, from a, from a cybersecurity standpoint, is it expensive? Well, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, super expensive, but it, you know, you've got to build your cybersecurity around the risks that you face. But there's a lot of things that we call, you know, basic cyber hygiene, for example, that they could be doing, whether it's, you know, making sure that their software is patched, making sure that they ensure that there are good practices among their users around things like uh, passwords or using stronger authentication, which is something, you know, more than a password to access the network. Um, But ultimately, um, if schools are investing in technology, which I think a lot of them are for good, right, for good, the technology really helps them, whether it's in the classroom or manage the, you know, the environment, they have to take on the cost of maintaining that over time. Maybe I'm being naive, but I probably would have assumed that schools were a relatively low-risk entity, you know, and thought about banks or companies as something that needed stronger defense. Am I wrong? Schools are high-risk targets because of the information they have and because of this connectivity they have to other networks, but also because they may be vulnerable. Um, They may be where they're not spending as much time or much investment in cybersecurity as the larger, more defended networks are. And I think, you know, there's also a mistake that sometimes uh, schools may make, which is they think, oh, well, why would I be a target, right? Why would would my school district be a target, right? And, you know, I think they have to understand that they're not always being targeted directly. So, you know, George Washington Middle School in any town USA um, may not be the target of the cyber hackers, but as these hackers are out there probing networks and looking for vulnerabilities, they may find that that school is running an outdated version of software, right, that they can get into because they know this vulnerability and how to access through it. And then all of a sudden, oh, we're in George Washington Elementary School. Now what can we do, right? Mm. What can we steal? Where can we go? So sometimes people think, oh, I'm not going to be targeted, but they need to understand they're not always targeted. Sometimes they're just being swept up. Okay, so let's say you're a freaked out parent listening to this conversation or a school administrator. Uh, What do you do? Well, we always say start with the basics, right? You know, make sure that you're teaching your faculty, teaching your students um, how to do the best practices. And, you know, tackling them, you know, head on. I mean, I can give you an example of a, not going to name names, but a school where they were teaching uh, sixth graders, you know, to access the new system they were using in middle school. And they said, well, make a long password. But if you didn't make a long password, don't know how to do that or it's too complicated to remember, use your home address, right? So, you know, moving, yeah. So moving away from those simple things, you know, to those, you know, to these kind of core cybersecurity practices are, are really important. We have to look at schools as repositories of incredibly important uh, information about people. But when they collect it, they take on a responsibility to protect it. Michael Kaiser, head of the National Cybersecurity Alliance, thank you so much. Thanks for having me in. Have you been the victim of a cyber attack? Let us know. We're online at Marketplace.org, and you can email us, weekend at Marketplace.org. This week, President Trump sent Congress a sweeping list of immigration demands, including building a border wall in exchange for an extension of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. That's known as DACA. And it was created to shield immigrants brought to the U.S. illegally as children from deportation. And it gives them U.S. work permits. But to be one of the 800,000 current DACA recipients, you've got to pay up. 
$495 to be exact. Our producer, Peter Balanon-Rosen, has been looking into what happens to the money behind that program. Hi, Peter. Hey, Lizzie. Yeah, last month when President Trump said he'd be ending DACA, I hit the Twitterverse to find DACA recipients. And I found people tweeting about that and money they'd essentially invested to get their DACA status. People like Antoine Munoz, who we spoke with. As I had to renew my uh, fee, I had a lot of bills to pay. I didn't have enough money to pay my fee. And I asked my manager, hey, I need a few more hours or a few more days somewhere, even if it's overtime. I know it's hard to do, but I need it. And since 2012, when the government began accepting DACA applications, it's cost between $465 and $495 a pop. So all 800,000 DACA recipients have had to pay this. Um, Why? Yeah, there are fees for first-time applications and for people who are renewing. A lot of people might not realize this, but taxes don't actually fund U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Hmm. That's the USCIS. It's a government agency, but it gets almost all of its funding through fees, not taxes. And since 2012, DACA alone brought the USCIS at least $785 million. Okay, so I go back to my, you know, current refrain. It's a government agency, doesn't get much uh, in the way of federal tax dollars. Again, why? Well, to understand that, let's go back to the 1980s. All right. Back then, the agency in charge of immigration was funded like any other branch of government through Congress. And that meant big budget battles to get money. In 1989, that all changed. Congress said, fine, you're charging fees. You can be in charge of your own money. And since then, the agency in charge of immigration has basically funded itself, meaning when the government shut down a few years back, USCIS kept trucking right along. Now, let's fast forward to today. With something like DACA possibly ending, that means a line of cash could soon evaporate for them. Thank you, Peter. We're going to get into this a little bit more with Doris Meissner. She's a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, and she was also the commissioner of the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service during the Clinton administration. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you. So DACA recipients pay fees. Uh, Where does the money from those fees go? Well, the money from the fees goes to an agency called United States Citizenship and Immigration Services that processes their applications. And the cost of doing the fingerprints, the cost of producing the card, the work authorization card, those are all costs that figure in the calculation. Different kinds of applications are set at different price levels. You know, one of the things that struck us when we went out and started talking to Dr. Recipients, we learned about the cost. Uh, runs about five hundred bucks to apply for DACA. Um, how did they figure out that 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 was what they were going to charge? Well, there is a government regulation that determines uh, or that guides agencies in determining how much they will charge for services like deciding this application. And that regulation requires that they set the fee with what their actual costs are as an agency for handling the application. But the idea is that this is to be a process and this is to be an agency that operates as close to how a business would as any kind of a government entity could. So they are to charge what their cost of business is. Well, it wasn't always funded by fees. Uh, How did this happen? Well, this happened in the 1980s when it became a fee-based agency, and that tends to be the terminology that's used. That is something that agencies like USCIS want because it meant that they had 
an assured revenue source, and they did not have to compete in the same way against other agencies. So it actually has been a real improvement in the immigration system because it does mean that the agency is able to support itself. You know, when I think about something like, say, DACA, um, that both brings in money, and I would imagine if, you know, we move toward the end of DACA, that's going to take money away. Uh, but how do you get a program off its feet then? Say suddenly uh, DACA is put in by executive order and yet you got to make everything happen. How do you make everything happen if you haven't gotten the fees yet? That's, of course, one of the problems is that, you know, where does an agency get the upfront money in order to invest in the processes that are required for a new program. That was particularly difficult with DACA because Congress can, if it's supportive of a particular program, allow for upfront funding. But it did not do that with DACA because it didn't approve of DACA. And that meant that the agency had to shift its personnel around in ways that made them available. That meant that Almost by definition, there became delays and some other parts of the immigration system where people didn't get their applications decided as quickly. So there's a real juggling act that come along with this kind of a fee-based system. Well, if DACA goes away, uh, what happens to the money that those fees have been bringing in? Well, that money, of course, won't be there, but they will have facilities, most likely, that they have been paying for. And the contractors that are generating the identification documents, the work authorization documents. So all of that will have to be adjusted. But for a while, that will be a problem for the agency to to adjust. You know, we have so many conversations on this show about budgets and federal budgets and Congress holding the purse strings for different things. You know, since this is a completely different model, I'm just curious, do you think it's a good one? When it came about, it was a lifesaver. And I think by and large, that's proven to be the case. There definitely are hiccup times like DACA when there's a disagreement between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and the legislative branch is somewhat punishing in the way that it deals with the revenue. But overall, it has meant a real improvement in the immigration system. How do you think it serves immigrants? You know, some people will have the money to pay these fees, some people won't. There is a bigger argument that you're suggesting, I think, and that is whether, in fact, this is a public good as compared to an individual good. I mean, the philosophy, of course, has been that this is a service that gives a private individual a good, therefore the individual should pay for whatever it costs. You know, the counter argument is that it's in the public interest. That argument is still out there, but it is not one that has a strong following at all, and it certainly isn't one that budgeteers have accepted or taken seriously for a very long time. Doris Meissner, Senior Fellow and Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute. Thank you. Thank you.
marketplace, we are all about numbers. They're the foundation of what we do. And every week, we bring you this week's news by the numbers. Today, we've got producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Tony, we're starting with you. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 19. That's percentage of female chief executives in the United States, according to data from Lean In and McKinsey. While women make up 47% of entry-level employees, women still aren't being represented at the very top, especially non-white women. The study found just one in 30 executives are women of color. $4.98. That's the average price per square foot to rent real estate in New York City and in London. The Big Apple ties for the top spot on RentCafe.com's list of most expensive cities to live in, followed closely by Zurich and San Francisco. Rounding out the bottom of the list with the cheapest prices per square foot are Istanbul, Shanghai, and Berlin. Three. That's how many horror films hit theaters on Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th is a popular day for scary movie releases and is considered an ominous day by many. Going back centuries to old stories about nights and supper clubs, and even a 1907 novel about a stockbroker who tried to destroy the market on the unlucky date. Weirdly, Friday the 13th, the famous horror movie, came out on May 9th, 1980. 71 million. That's how many American adults are unaware of the big data breach at Equifax. The credit rating agency just suffered a massive hack exposing the personal info of 145.5 million people. You do know about that, right? CreditCards.com did the numbers and found that young adults were the least likely to know about the hack. Only half of them had ever heard about it. By the way, I didn't ask, were you affected by this? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. So, here's the deal. I have the world's cutest dog. Hi, Mara. Mommy loves you. And on occasion, I may need a dog walker. It's a pretty simple task, right? You know, according to the four dog walking services I applied for, apparently not. (laughs) That is freelance journalist Lane Higgins. And yes, she was turned down to walk dogs. Why? You know, I think... That's a very good question. I got one question wrong on the safety test for WAG. And in order to become a walker for that on-demand app specifically, you need to have a perfect safety test score. And I think what did me in was all of the questions they have about harnesses. So to their credit, they're very thorough. And I have only ever used the simplest of leashes with my two labs. So I was woefully underprepared for those types of questions. And I did not consult the Google on that. So I guess that was... What did me in? All right. So I'm asking you all these questions because you wrote about dog walking and the dog walking industry for The Wall Street Journal. Can you tell me um, how this piece came about? Yeah. So it actually is sort of a funny story. I was speaking with my editor towards the end of the summer, and I was interning there over the summer. And I made a joke about how, yeah, I can't even become a dog walker, so I really don't know what I'm going to do after this internship ends. And he's like, wait, what do you mean? And then I had explained my tales of woe of how I had failed to become a dog walker with these four services. He's like, that's crazy. You need to look into that more. So in the process of poking around and asking friends and finding more people that had had similar experience, I realized, okay, there's a story here. What is the story behind this? I mean, why is it harder, as you put in your story, to become a dog walker percentage-wise than it is to, you know, get into an Ivy League school? So I think part of that is economic forces at play and that 
in a lot of the markets where these dog walking apps are, if you get more people using the apps, then you can hire more dog walkers. But they might kind of be at the market saturation in a lot of the markets that they're currently in. So it's hard to become a dog walker on top of the ones that they already have hired. Additionally, people put a lot of anxiety around, you know, giving someone the keys to your house to take out your dog because people see their pets not just as, you know, an animal that's living in their home, but as a bonafide member of their family. And I think that just in the same way that you'd maybe want to interview a babysitter before handing your kids over, you can't really always do that in the same way with these on-demand dog walking apps. So they want to make sure that there's an extensive vetting process so that the customers feel comfortable letting their dog loose. Because obviously the last thing you want to have happen is your dog gets free or, you know, worst case scenarios. Because I imagine that that's running through every person's mind when they are signing up for these apps, whether or not they trust the people, it's always lurking in that, okay, what if type situation. So these apps are doing everything they can to try to head that off from the get-go. How big is the market for these on-demand dog walking apps? So they, according to Ibis World, which does market research on this, they expect the industry of dog walking to be worth about a billion dollars by 2017, which is whenever that comes in. And it's grown 3.7% in each of the last five years. So part of that is because pet ownership is at an all-time high. And I think people are also more willing to pamper their pets um, than ever before. So there's, there's money to be spent and gained in that industry. So it's a lot larger than you'd think. Yeah, I mean, guilty as charged on the pampering front. Did you have a sense of who makes it through these screening process? I mean, I know you talked to WAG. What did they tell you? So it does seem like they tend to favor people that have a little bit of professional experience. They don't say that you need it in any part of your application, but most of the walkers I talked to had either worked in an animal shelter or worked as a dog walker in some capacity more in a more formal sense than just, you know, taking your neighbor's dog around the walk when they are out running errands or something like that. And I would say that most people are also young and tend to be people that express a really strong love of animals and don't really mention the money aspect. And that was Mm. in speaking with the CEO of both WAG and Rover, they both said, you know, the people that we want are people that would do this for free anyway, because they just love dogs so much. And I think that's telling. If you're a customer, how, how much does a walk at a service like WAG run you? So for a 30-minute walk, it depends on the rate a little bit, but for the most part, it is $15 to $25. And then they have certain promotions where if you have two dogs that you're walking at once, it's only an additional $5, and hour-long walks are a little bit more expensive. I think they're around $30. Um, so it's not a huge hole in your pocket. Lane Higgins is a freelance journalist, and she wrote her story about dog walking for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thank you. All right, pet owners, your thoughts on this? You heard Lane talk about pampering pets, so fess up. What have you bought your furry, feathered, or water-dwelling friends? Email us. We're weekendmarketplace.org. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Marketplace WKND, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about this one.
Fall sports are in full swing. Obviously football and the controversies around it, but also playoff baseball, regular season hockey, and the first basketball game of the season on Monday. If you're like a lot of fans, you won't be watching from your couch. Sports bars do a brisk business this time of year. Maybe especially so in Los Angeles, where the Dodgers made the playoffs. 3-2 the count. Goldschmidt reaches. Winning run comes to the plate, and J.D. Martinez. Down he goes. A strikeout to end it. Kenley Jansen with the save. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are headed to the National League Championship Series. But here's the thing. A lot of fans in L.A. haven't been able to watch the Dodgers all season because the team cut an exclusive deal with Time Warner Spectrum, which has been great for business for those sports bars I mentioned. Our producer, Eliza Mills, talked to the beverage director at one of them. I'm Tom Sigsby, and I'm the liquid commander at Mohawk Bend. So typically we'll have uh, all four TVs on, and sometimes we have a big projector screen that'll show some of the Dodgers games. We'll do different games on all of them. So you've got you know people with their gaze riveted directly to one of the TVs, um, kind of staring across each other in the room, which is fun. A lot of our staff are huge fans, hometown love, you know. Plus, I think the advantage of, of the fact that we are able to have sports packages and we're able to have the, you know, the Dodgers, Dodgers station on, which I know some people aren't allowed to anymore or don't have in their typical package. We definitely get people in just because just they can't watch the games at home. But, I mean, I think that, along with the marriage of the timing of the games, usually works out during happy hour. We've got a great craft beer selection in that helps too. But having the package separated is, is good for business for us. Obviously, it stinks for consumers at home. But yeah, we definitely have seen a boon. And, and I think the benefit also is now that people go out to the games, they've got that camaraderie. They, there's someone else they can meet someone or they might see someone that they had met at a previous, you know, watching a previous game out at Mohawk or somewhere else. So I think now that that momentum has happened, it kind of makes watching the Dodgers a little more social than it used to be. Sometimes I'm up in the office working and I'll just hear screams, you know, or moans, but it's all collective and that's really fun. Or if I'm behind the bar, I'm not watching the game. I'm making drinks and working with customers. So then when I hear something, I'll look up and I get to catch the replay, which is kind of fun. You know, I'll hear, hear the big reaction, but it's definitely like collective energy throughout the place. It's great. I mean, especially when there's like the, the culmination of all the sports happening at the same time, which happens this time of year. It's great the diversity of clientele that we get in for, for different games or for different teams, and it really kind of generates some, some extra energy, especially when you have opposing teams. When it gets to the playoffs, we not only get the before game crowd, we also get the after game crowd, um, which is huge for us too. You'll see a sea of blue shirts during the games. To put it in numbers would be difficult just because i got to compare it to each individual day of the week, but I mean... Especially in the pub area, yeah, we easily double or, double or triple our numbers. That was Tom Sigsby from the Mohawk Bend Sports Bar in L.A. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. And here on the show, we like to talk with people about money, finances, you know, where the economy meets real life. So with the Marketplace Quiz, we ask authors, musicians, and creative types to share lessons from their financial lives. Hi, I'm Rachel Bloom. I am the co-creator and star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a television show on The CW. Fill in the blank 
Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... Money can buy you um, not being terrified of how you're going to pay your rent or feed your family (laughs) or do the basic things in life. It can give you those kind of most basic securities. In a next life, what would your career be? I think I would want to be either a teacher or I really do like sciencey medical stuff. And so I think like some sort of doctor or scientist. Do you have like a specific field or any medical specialties? Um, I like cutting things open. I feel like a neuroscientist. Like neuroscience is really interesting to me. Also, I'm very interested in like the chemicals of mental illness. Okay. So I think um, like psychiatrist or, or, or something something with neurology or neuroscience or also working at SETI to look for aliens. <laughs> Either or. Either or. Equally as important. Yes. What is the hardest part about your job that nobody knows? The hardest part about my job that nobody knows is that I need to keep my energy up constantly. And I have very little time alone to just sit and be quiet and so often, even though I am a you know a bubbly extrovert, when I'm getting like hair and makeup done, I or if I'm in the car, I often just like complete silence because it's the only time that I get silence because my days are filled with I'm just I'm never alone. Do you have to tell people around you to be quiet? No, they get it. And like I also have the excuse of I meditate, so even if it's really just me falling asleep, <laughs> I'll be like I'm gonna meditate, and everyone like everyone's like oh that's we have to oh, she's gonna med- okay she's gonna. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good trick. Yeah. What is something you bought that you completely regret buying? I bought a an attachment for my shower faucet to wash my dog, and it just really <laughs> didn't work. It really didn't work and I and and I knew that I would have to like undo the faucet to make it work. Mm-hmm. It was a whole thing where like why did I buy this? Was it like a detachable hose? Yeah, it was a detachable hose, and I'm sure there's a better version I can buy. And even when I attached it, it still didn't work. Did you get your money back? No, I didn't. I think I just threw it away. Mm. I think it sat in the bathroom for like a year and a half, and then we were like, who are we kidding? We're not going to use this. And your dog has just remained unwashed? She's remained very, very (laughs) dirty since. Yeah, exactly. When did you realize this field of work could be an actual career? Well, I've been wanting to go into entertainment ever since I was, I mean, two, three years old. But um, I think when I first got my, when I got my first TV writing job Mm -hmm. and was getting a steady weekly paycheck, that was when I was like, okay, I think maybe I, maybe I don't have to wait tables (laughs) anymore. Maybe. Although there was a period of time where my boyfriend, who's now my husband, spotted me cash because I was <laughs> spending all my money on making those internet music videos that I probably would have gone back to waiting tables had it not been, been for the, the graciousness of my boyfriend. What advice do you wish someone had given you before you started your career? I guess monetarily, just assume you're going to go broke. Like, save your money like you're going to go broke. Um, Don't think that whatever you're making is going to last forever because in show business it isn't, especially when you're working from job to job. And then kind of spiritually or whatever, um, 
whatever problems you have before you're stressed out with heavy career stuff, mm -hmm. they will only be exacerbated in either success or failure, uh -huh. like intense success or intense failure, just intensity. So deal with uh, your issues sooner rather than later. That was Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Season 3 of the show just started, so check it out. Haley Hirschman produced this Marketplace quiz, and you can find our past quiz takers on the web at marketplace.org. Coming up on the next Marketplace weekend, how women in El Salvador are using theater to pull themselves out of poverty. There's a lot of help that needs to be done for the woman to raise their standard of living for their kids, for themselves. Plus, Ask a Manager's Allison Green is back. She'll be taking your questions on how to tackle relationships in the workplace. And in light of the sexual harassment claims around Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, we'll talk about how to handle inappropriate behavior in the office or wherever you work as an employee and employer. You can send your questions to Allison. We'll get through as many as we can. Email us, weekend at marketplace.org. Leave a comment on our voicemail line, 1-800-648-5114, and one of the team's producers will contact you. And that is it for Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Sitara Nieves is Marketplace's executive producer. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.